So I left Westinghouse. I told my boss, Jim Buck, that I'm leaving. He said, Bill, you can be a senior vice president here when you're in your 50s. At that time, I was 25, 26. I said, Mr. Buck, I'm going to be president of my own company called William Ravis Real Estate. He said, well, I can't beat that. Welcome to the Business Class Podcast, where we dive into conversations with alumni, students, faculty, and staff from the University of Dayton School of Business Administration. You'll hear career advice, conversations about ethical decision-making in business, and listen to stories from life on the UD campus. Here's your host, Dean Trevor Collier. Hello, and welcome to the Business Class Podcast. Today, I'll be joined by 1968 UD School of Business graduate, Bill Ravis. Bill is the founder and CEO of William Ravis Real Estate, Mortgage, and Insurance. His company is the number one independent family-owned real estate company in the Northeast and the number nine real estate company in the country, according to Real Trends. Thanks for joining me today, Bill. My pleasure. Good morning. I'd like to start our conversation with your early career after graduating from, from UD. I believe you started with United Technology for two years and, and then worked for Westinghouse for another four. Can you tell us a little bit about the positions you held in these early years and, and your career aspirations at that time? Yes, uh, I graduated from UD and immediately got a job at uh, Sikorsky Aircraft, United Technologies, and uh, was recruited out of there by, uh, uh, by Westinghouse. I had a skill set in, in something called PERT, Programming Evaluation Review Technique, and I, they wanted me to help them with some projects that they had, Westinghouse did, some projects that, that they had going. and. Uh, one of the projects that they had, and I, I became then a systems analyst. I then I became a supervisor of systems design and, and analysis. And one of the things I did was I brought the international company of Westinghouse to, together with the domestic company in the shipping and the shipping platform through technology. And I spent ooh, almost four years, five years doing that. And it was a huge success. I mean, the, we had a big meeting in New York City at the Biltmore Hotel. It's not there anymore. And I had, I can remember the names, Pepe de Cubis, the president of the international company, saying this is going to help for sure earnings. I can remember Don Burnham, same thing, president of Westinghouse. And at the time, nobody recognized myself and 30 programmers who did the job, meaning everybody else took recognition but the guys that did it. At that time, at that time, I didn't want to be in a career path, whereas I was doing the work and I was not getting recognized by my superior. So now what? So I said, well, why don't I do something on my own? So either I succeed or I fail on my own. And uh, early on, my father's a bricklayer. I used to, I used to mix cement with him. I loved the going inside the house, uh, uh, smelling the uh, sawdust. Etc. So why not get in the real estate business? So I left Westinghouse. I told my boss, Jim Buck, that I'm leaving. He said, Bill, you can be a senior vice president here when you're in your 50s. At that time, I was 25, 26. I said, Mr. Buck, I'm going to be president of my own company called William Ravis Real Estate. He said, well, I can't beat that. So I left me a phone at the desk above a grocery store. 50 years later, we have 4,500 people here now. And, you know, you gave some of the numbers. So so I wanted to be an entrepreneur from, from the get-go. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Either I succeed or I fail on my own. I didn't need anybody else patting me on the back. I mean, I, I learned 
some people in corporate America are very good, but this particular instance was, was good for me because it gave me the opportunity to get out and do my own thing. So in, in, if you go back to 1974, when you, when you left, other than knowing you like the smell of sawdust and, and you <laughs> had to help your dad mix, mix cement, what did you know about real estate? Nothing. <laughs> so what I did was I went to the library and I didn't even know how to do forms, you know, how to do a listing agreement, how to do contracts. So I went to, I went to the library to look up real estate and real estate forms. And I came back and I said, okay, fine. You got to get this. You have to get that. So I had no idea that the local real estate companies were not using these forms. So when I, when I gave them, you know, say a, a, a listing agreement that I have from the library, it's one of the real estate, real estate people said, well, what is this? <laughs> so, well, don't you use this? He said, no. So I, I had to go into the real estate community. By the way, too, I was only at the time 27 years old and the real estate community didn't like a 27 year old person to come in because they had their own little, if you will, the boys club and the girls and boys club. Of course. So they locked me out uh, for, for about a year, year and a half. I had a, I had a threatened suit in order to get it in. So I did and I got in. So it took, it took some doing, uh, you know, you're, you're at a, a lot of disadvantages, but really what, what gets you through this stuff is sort of a passion. I want to do my own thing. I'll get there. I have an end game. I want to have a family business. So I had a vision of what I wanted to do early on. And so that drove me, even though I had the, the ups and downs of the markets, I had the industry didn't want me to get in there. And so here we are. So you've got you've got one room over a grocery store. It's you, a, a desk, a phone, and and a lot of ambition. How big was your ambition? Did you expect? Did you really expect to build the company you have today when you were twenty seven? I no, I had no expectation on the size. Uh, I the expectation I had was that I had to compete, and so so competing meaning I had to get big, for. Uh, we had bigger comp uh, competition coming in, like a, a Merrill Lynch. It wasn't uh, the business at that time was mom and pop businesses. Then all of a sudden things changed. You had bigger companies coming in there. A Merrill Lynch, you had something called Colwell Banker, which is a franchise out of, out of California. And it dawns on me, I cannot stay small anymore because I can't compete. So we came up with, you know, <clears throat> new programs in order to, recruit people into the company. We, our technology was a seam that we had, our education was a seam. So we came up with programs to compete against the bigger players and uh, pushed real hard on our stuff as opposed to their stuff. So, so, so by having a bigger competitor come in the marketplace actually was an advantage because it made me, it made me go big as uh, otherwise I probably would have stayed small. So you have to, in effect, your competition helps you. It doesn't hurt you. You had to, you had to change on the fly. Yes, I did. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So, Bill, we, we've we've met once before, but I feel like I, I know you better than I should know somebody that I've only met once because I've read a couple of your books. So you, you've got three books. <laughs> the first one is uh, The Way of the Entrepreneur, Lessons, yes. Journey to Build a Family-Owned Business Empire. You recently published a, a sequel to that one, uh, The Vision and the Passion, 
continuing the journey to build a family yep. owned empire. And then there's a there's a third one that I think was actually in between those two. It's called the 10 Noble Rules for Business. Yeah, and I have another one. Maybe I didn't send you out. There's another one, the uh, 10 Noble Rules for Compassionate Leadership. I need to get that one. That one's that one. That one sounds very Marianist. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes. Um, well, so so I've focused. Uh, I've read all of the first one, and I have to admit I haven't finished the second one. But I, I just got that one from you a couple of days ago. But you talk in in those two books about some difficulties you faced, particularly you, you alluded to some of this uh, a minute ago when you started your company and, and sort of dealing with the the existing forces in the real estate market. Could you tell us a little bit more about some of those challenges you faced in, in the early days and how, how your company um, was able to, to, to rise above that and, and, and compete? Yeah. So, okay. So I'm me a phone at desk above a grocery store and I get my com competition in the marketplace. And I see uh, one of my competitors having a lot of cars from New York in, in the parking lot. And I'm saying to myself, why is that cool? cars from New York in the parking lot. Well, what was happening is he was giving referral fees to people in New York to send business to him in Connecticut. And so I go check out what the referral fee was. Well, the referral fee was like 20%. And I said, well, maybe I do the same thing, but I give 40%. Okay, so I upped the referral fee game and the New York cars started to come to us. Well, he didn't like that too much, nor did the community like that too much. So what they did was they called, he called me up when they said, I'd like to have lunch with you. I said, sure. So we go have lunch. And he said, uh, so we go to a hotel and it looks something like, you know, Sopranos, all right? It's a round table and all the real estate owners were there at the, in, in, the, in that having lunch with me. And they all stood up and said, by the way, young man, you know, what you're doing here is not what we, you should be doing. We have certain ways of doing business and we expect you to do a certain way. So by the way, you know, you're undercutting the commission levels here too. You know, we have a standard commission level. You know, at that time, this is all antitrust stuff now, but at that time it wasn't so antitrust. So you should be charging this for a commission level and this you should be charging for a referral fee. And that's it. And if you don't do that, well, you're gonna you're not gonna do business in town. We'll make sure. And they try to shut me down by not letting me co cooperate in the MLS service. So at, at the end of the day, I thought when I'm leaving that, you know, I I stood up in front of the group, and I said, you know what, this is America, and you can do whatever you want to do in business. As far as I understand that, I don't have to go by your rules. I'm gonna do what I wanna do and I'll have the kind of business I wanna have and you're not gonna tell me what to do. So, you know, today, none of those people are in business. <laughs> All of them are out of business and I dominate the marketplace. I have about 55, 60% market share in most of the towns that they, that they were in. So the point being is you have it, you have a vision for your business. You have to compete. You can't, somebody should not be regulating you, meeting your competition, telling you what to do, what not to do. You got to do what you think is best. And you got to service your community. You got to service your customers. And you have to make sure the people who work for you are, are, are happy and making, so making money. So one of the things we did do too, is I changed up the game by 
making the real estate agent my customer. So the, the, the customer, people buying and selling houses was the agent's customer, not mine. So I put programs together to make their business uh, go faster than say our competition's agents because I was focused on their careers, whereas our competition wasn't. So, you know, the combination of refocusing on where, where my business was and also to not listening to my competitors and doing what I wanted to do, basically, you know, I think about it now, all those guys that were in their gals in that room are no longer in business. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit more about the, the this company motto that our, our sales associates are our customers? Um, uh, elaborate on that and, and what role has that played in your, your company's success? Well, that's been everything. Uh, we were the first in the United States to come up with that idea. It, it was, you know, it, it, I had to figure it. So I'm saying to myself, okay, if I want to make money, the agent's got to make money, right? If they make money, I make money. So why not focus in on them making money? Why don't I do whatever I need to do to build their infrastructure? So whether it be training, education, technology, coaching, mentoring, whatever they need to build their business, why don't I focus in on doing that? As a result, I get a return for doing that. So, so that was the first, we were the first in the United States to come up with that business model. Now everybody sort of gets it, you know, this is 50 years later, but the business, so we changed the business model of the industry and by making, and then the other thing I did was we, we invented teams. So therefore there was no such thing as a team in the industry. So the teams 35 years ago, a couple of my agents came to me and said, hey, Bill, you know what? It's, we can't do anymore. We're just, you know, we're up to here in business and we can't handle that. So, well, why don't you develop a team under my company? So why don't you have a company under my company? So, so that then was a change in the industry too. So the each agent, they had a certain requirement that so see us at least have a administrative person with them and one buyer agent. If they did that, they would have a team that they could brand. They can call it the Michelle Genovese team or the Al Filippone team. So they had a company with underneath our company. That was a big change too. So, so you could see how this thing just sort of just, uh, just went along. First of all, we looked at the agent as the customer. Then the next thing, the agent's getting too successful. Now what do we do? Well, we helped them form a team. Now they have a team. Now they have a company underneath our company. And all this is is producing revenue for the agent, so therefore we get revenue. That's the business model we have here. Now, nobody had that before, and we were the first in the nation to do it. Now, that's sort of commonplace right now. So in 1988, you were an entrepreneur of the year from, from Ernst & Young. I imagine it might have had something to do with this, this, this different business model that you're running. But if you, if you think back to 1988, you're... 14 years after you, you left a company because you weren't getting recognition. And, and now here you are running your own company and getting a pretty, pretty big recognition. How, how did that feel for you personally? And, and what do you think was the key to earning that recognition? You know, it, it's, um, it's always nice when somebody recognizes your efforts. So it's always, again, to the recognition thing that I was really did not get with Westinghouse. 
to be recognized by Ernst the Young at the time to say, hey, you're doing a good job, young man. Then he, uh, we were voted one of the fastest growing companies in the United States at the time, too, in Inc. Uh, magazine. It's great to get a pat on the back. You know? So therefore, the lesson I learned with the Westinghouse stuff and the recognition stuff is to recognize the people that work for us. My job is to pat them on the back every day to say, you're doing a good job. What can I do to help you? My job as an entrepreneur is to help people succeed in what they're doing. That's my job. In my, my little book, The 10 Noble Rules for Compassion Leadership is you're there to help people succeed. If they succeed, you succeed. So your focus is always on them, never you. Whereas my earlier days at Westinghouse, by the way, Westinghouse doesn't exist anymore. Do you know that? Yes. <laughs> You're out of business. It's called CBS, I think. But anyway, um, if you focus if you focus on yourself, it's never going to work. You you won't succeed. You got to focus. If you're running a business, you got to focus on people who work for you. They are basically your assets. You're there to help them, and as a result, you get a return by doing that. And it's actually, you know, actually pretty fulfilling to see people happy in what they're doing, you helping them and you getting a return. It's not a bad situation. It's a pretty great situation. So I, I think there's many people that, that struggle to, to understand how someone can be a, a successful business person in, in a capitalist system and, and also be a compassionate leader. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the 10 noble rules for compassionate leadership? Yes. Uh, the most important, yes, I list uh, 10 rules and I think are, are the most important thing for compassionate leadership. And the first one I have is we are leaders who put others first. Again, too, it's not about you, it's about them because that they in your company are the engine of your company. You may have the vision and you may have the drive, but you don't have those folks around you. You basically go nowhere. So you've always got to put people first. You always got to make sure they're happy. You got to make sure they're that you that they buy into your vision and that they, you, you explain the vision, your vision for them. The agents, the customers, our vision, our job is to help you build. And so we have employees around them that should have the same vision and should be doing the same thing for us. So it's always about putting leaders, put others first. And, and what you do is you get a, a beautiful return from the, from the from folks that work for you. They, they do appreciate who you are. It's just not a job. They appreciate your, your honesty, your, your ability to if you will, have, have communications with them on a sort of one-to-one -one level. We, we do not have an organization chart in, in this company. We have different skill sets. As the CEO, I have a skill set. You know, I got to look at the operations. I got to look at cash flow. Gotta, but I'm on the same level as the receptionists at, at the front desk. We're all human beings. We're all, we all working hard together. We just have different skill sets. Her skill set is making sure that people who come in the branch are going to be happy, or she can take care of whatever they need to take care. Of, she needs to take care of. My skill set is running a branch, but there's no pyramid organizational chart in this company. It, it, there never was, and never will be. 
And my sons who work here know that too. It's just that's who we are. I love it. It it reminds me a lot. You know, University of Dayton's a, a comes from the the Marianist order, and we talk a lot in, in in the school of business about servant leadership, and and the Marianists talk a lot about everybody has a seat at the table. So I, I don't know if this was conscious or subconscious, but do you think there was any connection between your your education at UD and and sort of your philosophy on, on leading this company? Uh, the University of Dayton, I mean, uh, I wouldn't be where I am where I am today if it wasn't there, if I wasn't there. They provided me, first of all, I'm dyslexic, so therefore to getting into school was not the easiest thing for me. They took a chance on me, and that's the first big thing. University of Dayton took a chance on me, and uh, I was not a good school student. I lived in the it was downtown in, in the housing section there. We, I guess we don't want to call it what we should call it. <laughs> but, and, uh, you know, I did I did a little bit too, too much partying at, at the earlier stage. And then I got myself on campus. And, I, you know, and then I, I got into the, uh, if you will, I started getting into the study and getting my grades up, et cetera, et cetera. But, University of Dayton gave me the discipline to get things done. It, it helped me. Uh, I, I remember a particular uh, finance professor, I forget his name, who so I just admired him and, and, and how he was disciplined. So the school gave me, yeah, the school gave me a discipline. It gave me sort of a, um, a taste of how I would do things for myself. I, I was away from home. I mean, I, we took, we didn't have any money, and I couldn't go back and forth to see my mother and father. Every once in a while, we took, I took a bus from Dayton, Ohio, and went to Connecticut, and I forget how long that was, 14, 16 hours or so. Wow. But it, 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 it gave me a discipline, and uh, yes, if it wasn't for the school, and, and by the way, the, the people there were terrific. Um, the students were terrific, and all I remember is the warmth of of, of the of, of the place. And I also remember three two beer. I don't know if that's, that's... <laughs> we we don't have three two beer anymore. But uh, I, I'm, from I'm from Kentucky, and my dad's told me many stories about driving driving over the river into Ohio so he could get three two beer when he. Was... <laughs> but anyway, the uh, the. Uh, just being away and being on your own and actually uh, being cared for. I, I felt very cared for at the university today. Do you have any good stories from your time at UD that, that you'd be willing to share with the public audience? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of party stories, I can tell you. Um, I just remember going it. I remember going it. I forget his name. It was a teacher. He was a finance teacher, and I was just impressed with his with his discipline. I know he had. I, I think he had a career. And he was doing this. He made a lot of money, and maybe at the time was sort of a private equity type of thing. And he just came into school just to teach. And he was just giving himself up as a teacher. He made enough money. And I just thought that was just 
terrific that he would just spend the time with students after he made a ton of money. He didn't need to do that. Um, I was impressed with that. So that's the kind of attraction that I saw at the school. People committing themselves uh, in a very, very genuine uh, way to help students learn. It was, it was pretty cool. Do you have any examples of how your UD education helped you along your along your career along along the, the any issues you're facing when you were growing your company well the thing was that i was planted at school away from my parents you know and i didn't have the means to get back and forth so i was there and so as a result of uh, the culture of ub basically i was imbued with and and it, and it was about being on your own, doing your own thing, get help from folks uh, if you need you needed help. Uh, I think I was on academic probation my <laughs> my freshman year, and I sort of had to go through stuff with uh, some of the teachers, which were very very helpful to get me back on track. And the reason why I was on academic pro probation, two reasons: one is very very difficult for, for me being dyslexic and doing study and the other problem the bigger problem was that i was too much of a party guy so i had to get out of that mode too <laughs> so so i had to, I, so I, I got disciplined in terms of the study i got out of the party mode and and the school was very very uh, accommodating that's what can i say it's just a, it was just a very gentle school very accommodating it, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't harsh reality there, meaning either you, either you do this way or adios. It wasn't that way, which it was very accommodating. I've had very warm, but it's sort of, sort of, if you will, a little bit of what I try to do with our company. Sort of the same culture of the accommodation, helping, you know, cheerleading if you will yeah and uh, and when you go down this you so it's not like like i said i went down in terms of the academic probation it, it wasn't pushing the button to get you out okay what do we do to help and sort of i guess you know anyway it's sort of what i do with my company yeah we like we like to think that you know we're we're putting our students in an environment where you know they can they can succeed they can they can fail but the the stakes are, are are rather low here and and we're gonna if they fall down we're gonna we're gonna help them get back up so that when they fall down in life they're able to to get back up um you know which which is a lot tougher to do when you don't have the support system that we've got here at ud what advice would you give to current students considering a career in business Well, you know, you you probably my my guess you're not going to really find your your lane until you're about thirty. So what what when because you've got to go through what's what do you like and what you don't like, and that's usually maybe a job or two prior to school. So you're going to get out of school maybe twenty two or th thereabouts. And or you maybe want to go get your MBA or whatever, whatever. 
you've got to sort of find out what your niche is and what do you like doing. Don't do something you don't like doing. And so therefore choose what you like. If you're, if you're an artist, that don't go and become an accountant. <laughs> if you're an accountant, don't become an artist. You got to actually do what you like doing and what your skill sets are. Everybody has their own skill set. And you got to go figure, and it's going to take you some time. So you're going to graduate. Don't worry about making sure you can make a decision right away on what you want to do. My thinking is, think what you want to do is go try some industries out, see what you like, see what you don't like. And uh, it's not, and then, then when you're a little bit older, by 30, you should have a pretty good idea what your skill set is. And I would say, just go for it. And, and But you can't do that when you're 40. It's too late because, because you got people in their 20s behind you. So you really got to find out what your skill set is about 30. And so, you know, and I have friends who, who have children in the 30s. And a lot, a lot of them like to go you know, exploring and going, you know, hiking in the Alps and sort of travel around the world, that kind of stuff. That's good for a while. That, you know, that may be a portion of your time, six months or so to do that two years. Doesn't make too much sense to me personally. And I know it's a new generation. I know this is what sort of they do. Uh, I would suggest if to be counter of that is to get your skill set done first and then do your you're traveling and all that kind of stuff later. Uh, you will have an advantage over others that don't think that way. Meaning if I get my skill set done by I'm 30, I have an advantage now for myself in life, at least from a financial standpoint or from a career standpoint that others don't would be my advice. Yeah, I, I get a lot of students that, that come talk to me and they don't know what they want to do. They don't know what, what industry to go into. And, and, and I say something very similar to what you just said. P pick the one you think you are going to like the most and go try it. And if you find out that it doesn't work, that's great information, right? You find that out yeah. early and then you pivot and you go in a, different, in a different direction. Yeah, you never lose doing that. What you do is you learn. So what you, by, by doing stuff, it's not like, okay, I, I'm I lost some time doing that. No, no, you don't lose anything. You basically learn that that was it. That was not it. <laughs> Something else has got to be it. So by doing this, you're learning and you're actually building. You're building yourself, your personality and, and your knowledge and all that kind of stuff. So it's so good. So you mentioned your sons earlier, and, and they are now part of your business, and you, you talk about them a little bit in, in your book. As a, as a father, I imagine there's, there's great joy working with your children, but it, it, I, I have to think it also comes with some complications and, and challenges. Can, can you tell us how you try to navigate the, the family dynamic within such a large company? Yeah, I mean, uh, Chris and Ryan, my daughter too, I, I was thinking, my, my daughter has an MBA in, in marketing and Ryan has his MBA in, in, in family business and Chris is just, he has his undergraduate work. Uh, I tried to give them what I thought was their skill set 
strength. Lori was marketing, Ryan was financing operations, Chris was sales. So I try to place them in the areas that I saw their strengths. Now they were younger. And again, too, I told them too, that uh, you go look at other jobs and go do other jobs. And when you're at, when you're 30 years old, you want to come work there, you knock on the door. And they all, they all did. And Lori, then when she started working here, she said, dad, I said, I don't want to work like Chris and Ryan. I I'm going to do my singer songwriter stuff. I said, go for it. So she's a singer songwriter and she loves it. Um, the uh, complications are, it's like any family. You always have, you know, it's like a big family business. You always have something that shows up. But uh, it's a trust and love of each other that you sort of get through it. So you've got to really, it, it's the same thing of any family. You, you, it, with your kids and your father and mothers, brothers, sisters, this is a relationship that you have. No matter what stuff hits you're basically going to get through it because you're part of each other's life. And uh, so, so even though we've had, you know, it's ups and downs in the business in terms of markets, uh, we as individuals are pretty tight. And, uh, and that starts, you know, that starts when you're, when they're one or two years old. I mean, I've been dragging them around projects since they've been two years old. So they sort of get it. I get it. They know who the boss is basically at the end of the day. <laughs> so there is, there is, there, we have, we have a, a system in which, you know, I'm the tiebreaker. If they're, if they're having debates uh, and I have to go make it, you know, and if I see one side saying this and the other side saying this, and I sort of like it in the middle, then I say, okay, fine, this is what we're going to do. And so that's, at, at the end of the day, I'm the tiebreaker. But we have a thorough, lively debate lots of times. Uh, and that's it. So you, you give the freedom to let them be who they want to be. And if you if there's there's conflict, then you're basically between the sons. If Julian is not here with us, but if you have to make a decision, I'm the tiebreaker. Uh, they know that. Uh, I make the decisions in terms of you know, worth cash flow, money, that kind of stuff. So uh, they are owners of the company. So what I did too, against the advice of my accountant, <laughs> gave them ownership and uh, they earned it. They're very good at what they do. They're as good as anybody in the nation, the two of them. So they have ownership in the company. Now, you know, what's now what you have is you've actually passed a baton of your ownership to them. You have, you know, you have your, you have a trust that you sort of, they, they own now that you have passed at the time. So that's a whole nother thing is as you get into your businesses and as you started to sort of move yourself out and bringing them in, you're basically passing everything on to them. Now, that's a, that's a good one. That's, that, that's been interesting because I've never, you know, that's a very good, interesting part of the journey is passing the stuff that you work with them on to them. It's a, uh, uh, it's a whole different feeling than building a business. I, I have to think the succession planning is, is a long conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, it's generally with yourself, accountants and attorneys, and then they sort of show up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you got, and they have their two cents, all right? And uh, you take that into consideration, but it's a, it's a whole different thing. A bit, building a business is a lot easier than succession planning. That's, that's a little harder stuff. And nobody teaches you that, by the way. You sort of have to learn it on your own. So you talk about hard stuff. Something else you talk about in the book is, is your wife battling cancer and, and yourself yep. battling cancer. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about how you were able to, to manage such a large business while dealing with these, these personal challenges? Well, my wife, Candy, uh, she had uh, diagnosed with acute myeloma leukemia. And her doctor at the time, we flew up to Yale. We were in Florida when she got the diagnosis. We flew up to Connecticut. We went to Yale. Yale was right around the corner from where we lived. And as we walked in there, the doctor said to her that uh, she has four months to live. And then she started crying. And I said to him, I said, no, no, that's not, that's not going to happen. I said to him, he said, you know, I just, I don't care who you are, billionaire, millionaire, important guy. I said, she's not going to have any more than four months to live. I said, no, that's wrong. I said, you know who I am? He, he said that. And I said, no, I'm your customer and she's your patient. And we're going to get through this together. And so, so the next thing I did is I contacted the CEO of the hospital. I said, I got a problem with this doctor. And, and I said, you, you need to cool his heels because we're not, we're not going through his program of her dying in four months. So he and I duped it out eventually for, and the reason why I'm telling you this is, is there's a reason for it. He and I duped it out for about three or four months, she event, he eventually, she, she, the CEO, eventually got rid of him off of our account, brought somebody else in. It was a lovely lady, just absolutely an angel. And we, and Kenny went, uh, was in uh, rehab. She was in, basically in bed for two years with transplants, could not walk. And, uh, and now she's recovering. She's on her 10th year. She's not taking. The point being is you have to have an advocate. You really can not really, you can listen to your doctors, but you don't listen. If you understand what I mean by that, you have to have an advocate. You have to make sure just like anything else, you find the best skill set for that disease that you can find. Where we did, we found the Irish a Sufi who was a marvelous woman, much different than the guy who we had. And because of Iris is one of the reasons why I sent Candy's run. And because of me pushing Candy's will to live. And meanwhile, you know, I'm running a business. The business basically what it did it gave me some relief from the agony of seeing my wife in, in, in sort of a tough way. So I got relief. It was business was good for me. And so so it wasn't like a burden now for me, it was my relief. Yeah. I had to deal with Candy and her disease. And then also to my my, I had lung cancer too, so I had a third of my lung taken out. And I just had a great doctor. And when you hear about this cancer stuff, you can't believe it's you. <laughs> no, somebody else. When you, when you find out it's you, and then also, all of a sudden, uh, in, you know, your mortality shows up, 
that's a whole different mindset. And and at the end of the day, just clear all this little talking that you have in your head about this or that, and you just clear the system out and just you know you're gonna go through the journey, you'll only get through it. It'll take you a little time, but you go through the journey, you'll get through it. So it's a mindset that gets you through some of these illnesses. Now, you know, some people, you know, some of some of the illnesses are very, very dire, dire and can be very difficult, but on the whole, the mindset that Candy had and the mindset that I had in terms of getting through this stuff really is very, very helpful. It, so, it's, it's very it's reminiscent, and just hearing your story, the the way that you tackled sort of cancer and your, your wife's initial diagnosis, very similar to the way you tackled the existing real estate professionals who told you you, you needed to do something one way and you said no 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 we're gonna <laughs> you're right and then think about it you're absolutely right. so you, you in a way don't tell me what to do <laughs> i'll do it you know and i want to do it in a proper way and you know professional and ethical way but i'm not going to listen to what you have to say i'm gonna have to go figure it out myself too and if i don't agree with you then you know we're, we're going to go a different direction than what you suggested and that's what happened with the first doctor. Whereas my lung cancer doctor was marvelous. And he was just absolutely just terrific. He said, you want to take a 30-year lung out? And said, that's it. You'll be done. Okay. And that's it. So two and a half years later, three years later, uh, I, you know, I'm fine. I'm cancer-free. And, and Candy's stuff is uh, she takes chemo every day. And she takes three days or five days. She She's not feeling so hot, and then the next 20 days, she's fine. So, the miracle of modern medicine. It's a miracle. Uh, 10 years after a, a four-month diagnosis. That's really yeah, yeah. Must be quite, quite an amazing woman. Well, well Bill, uh, I, I'll tell you, I, I really enjoyed the, the two books that, that I've read. Um, I, I, would, I would recommend them to, to other uh, business leaders and, and, and budding entrepreneurs. Is there any other specific advice that you'd want to offer to entrepreneurs or, or future entrepreneurs yeah if you believe in something don't give up your belief have a compassion go for it and uh, so have a vision for your life whatever it is and go for it that that's and go for it i mean just don't you only have you only have one little shot at it and uh do you know 100 go for it I love it. I love it. Bill, do you have any, any questions for me or anything else you'd like to share with our audience? No, you've done a great job. Congratulations on the great job you're doing at the university. Keep up the good work. It's proud to know, proud to know you. I appreciate, I appreciate your, your time with us today. Thanks for, for sharing your story with our audience. I uh, imagine this, this interview was very intriguing for our, our fellow flyers and, and, our, and our current students. Uh, I hope to chat with you again soon. Will do. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks as well to our listeners. I hope you will join us again next time on the Business Class Podcast. Go Flyers. Thanks for joining us for the Business Class Podcast. If you'd like to engage with us further, please follow us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook accounts all use the name SBA. You can also email the Dean's Office with questions or suggestions for future podcasts at sbadean at udayton.edu. 
No matter where you are on your career path, we are proud that you're part of our Dayton Flyer family.